Support for AHLA comes from Clearwater, the leading provider of enterprise cyber risk management and HIPAA compliance software and services for healthcare organizations, including health systems, physician groups, and health IT companies. Our solutions include our proprietary software as a service-based platform, IRM Pro, which helps organizations manage cyber risk and HIPAA compliance across the enterprise, and advisory support from our deep team of information security experts. For more information, visit clearwatercompliance.com. Good afternoon, and welcome to the latest edition of the Speaking of Health Law podcast. I'm your host today, uh, Wes Morris. I am the Managing Principal Consultant with Clearwater. And joining me today is Andrea Lee Lena, who is partner at uh, McGuire Woods Chicago office and part of the firm's team of more than 60 healthcare attorneys. Andrea represents clients at the intersection of healthcare, innovation, and technology. She advises investors, healthcare providers, and healthcare technology companies on mergers and acquisitions, data privacy and security, regulatory requirements, healthcare IT, and fraud and abuse. Andrea frequently speaks and writes about emerging healthcare and technology topics. She's been quoted by CNBC and Cranes and has given guest lectures on healthcare law at Northwestern Prisker School of Law, uh, the University of Michigan School of Public Health, Loyola University School of Law, and the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And today we're going to be talking about getting back to the basics uh, when it comes to uh, a number of different areas. And Andrea, to start off our conversation today, how would you say that you would phrase the getting back to the basics? What is it we're trying to get to here? Mm -hmm. Well, thanks, Wes, for having me. I'm super excited to be a guest on this podcast. I listen to the AHLA podcast a lot, so it's it's an honor, so I'm excited to be here. But yeah, we wanted to touch on today, you know, back to the HIPAA basics, because HIPAA has been around a long time, and we are all extremely familiar with it. All medical professionals, compliance officers, in-house counsel, um, outside counsel, think and know a ton about HIPAA and much of their professional career has been, you know, since HIPAA has been enacted. But I think one thing that I've been noticing recently, and I'm sure many others are as well, is that this can provide a sense of comfort when maybe there shouldn't be any. I mean, I see nearly every day healthcare clients from small to big that they don't have their compliance programs in a good place. And this is a real compliance risk, um, financial risk, reputational risk if there is a HIPAA breach. So many times, you know, a client or a company will experience a breach or OCR comes in to investigate or, you know, they have an adverse consequence from um, lack of HIPAA compliance and maybe an attempted sale of a business. And HIPAA compliance finally comes back to to the forefront. So what we wanted to talk about today is just revisiting those basics of HIPAA breaches and HIPAA breach analysis. Um, so we can make sure you're kind of getting in front of that. And we all know HIPAA, but we're also focused too on all of what's the new thing, what's what's the new reg, what's the new rule. And maybe we need to just revisit and make sure our existing HIPAA compliance practices are in a, in a great place. And two, um, it's just the state of cybersecurity right now. I I feel this way, I'm sure other people feel this way, is there's just an overwhelming number of threats, uh, persistent nature of privacy threats, 
I mean, you hear about breaches every single day. I mean, there's from the international threats with state actors trying to hack in um, and get information from national, national security. There's your opportunists targeting healthcare data specifically. And then you have your more common breaches outside of hacking and IT, whether that's unauthorized disclosure or loss or theft. Um, and then after that, 2020, right? You can't go without talking about COVID. I mean, this has been, you know, 2020 is a year unlike any other. And you've got, you know, more and more people using their own devices, using their own cell phones, their laptops at home, remote work adoption due to the pandemic. And then there's been reports, you know, comparing the data breaches that were reported in 2019 compared to those reported in 2020 with over a 55% increase in 2020 and expecting a similar increase for 2021. So yes, it's an old topic, but you know, just stressing that it, it can't be ignored. And um, it's just as important now as it was um, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and we should really be keeping it in the forefront every day. Yeah, thinking thinking back, uh, you know, I started working in this in this field about a month after the privacy rule compliance date in two thousand three. Where has oh, that wow. gone? Yeah. Oh my goodness! Um, and uh, you know, I remember the early days with HIPAA and just trying to figure out how to write basic policies and procedures and 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 train our mm -hmm. folks and and all of those sorts of things and and that first policy and procedure that ran 300 pages because I could not figure out how to write one that's meaningful <laughs> you know and and, mm -hmm. and then and then it sort of went quiet for a few years we had our basic policies we had our training program and then things just sort of coasted along a little uh, until, well, we had the security rule come in 2005, but the big one was the breach notification rule that came as a part of high tech. That was kind of a game changer, wasn't it? What? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it added teeth for sure. When, when I think about the the breach notification rule in specific, and I know we, we were going we're gonna to talk some about that. I think about the time before the breach rule in which we had to investigate a uh, any any sort of an impermissible disclosure or compromise. We had to investigate it, we had to document it, we had to take action to mitigate it, whatever the case might be. But the one thing we didn't have to do was tell the patient unless they asked us. You know, <laughs> unless they came to us and said, I'd like an accounting of disclosures, we didn't actually have to tell them. And that's really mm -hmm. what changed with the breach notification rule. And as we've gone forward from there, you know, in the early days of the breach rule, there was still some kind of looseness there. I, you might recall this, where there was, uh, instead of the probability of compromise being the standard by which we evaluated a breach, it was a uh, risk of harm. Uh, you, you might recall that particular standard. Um, and mm -hmm. when we hit that risk of, when we changed from the risk of harm, which kind of gave us a lot of leeway to decide whether to make a notification, and we got to the the probability of compromise standard, that's really when the game started to change in terms of how we had to react and how quickly we had to react. But, you know, we're 10, 
10 plus years in, I think almost 12 years in, why is the breach notification rule still so difficult for us? And why is breach notification still such a difficult issue for us to, to manage? And why is this worth refreshing again? Yeah, well, and I think that's one of the places where I constantly um, see covered entities and business associates um, having missteps in HIPAA compliance is around breach analysis. Um, so often I will see whether it's in the deal context or otherwise, where perhaps you're receiving hotline complaints that involve PHI. And there's just no record that they were adequately investigated. There's no documentation or potentially there's patient complaints that aren't properly getting to the, you know, HIPAA privacy and security officers or officers, and they're not getting um, to general counsel and being reviewed and investigated in the way they should. So I think that's an area just I'm seeing more and more of where's that documentation, where is the breach analysis, and really just reminding covered entities and business associates that that's a critical requirement. I mean, you're required to maintain that documentation um, if you're, you know, when you go through that breach analysis. So really demonstrating, like you were talking about, is there a low probability that the PHI has been compromised? And then looking at the factors that are in the breach notification rule to determine whether you actually have a reportable breach. And I think this is a critical step, not only to determine, okay, do I have to report, but also prevents you from over-reporting, right? Not every single potential breach is an actual reportable breach. I mean, there are many legitimate reasons in the, in the privacy rule why you may not have to report. Um, so looking at, you know, carefully looking at that four factor test that, you know, the nature and extent of the PHI involved, you know, are you dealing with disclosures of full medical records? Are you disclosing, you know, social security numbers, mental health information? What is the scope of the identifiers that have been potentially disclosed? Who was the unauthorized person who used the PHI or who may have received it? Was the PHI actually acquired or viewed? And then the extent of your mitigation. And I think that last one too is so important of make sure you're documenting all the great things you're doing. What steps did you take to mitigate any risk? You know, did you train people? Did you have to fire someone? Did you have to put in additional security protections? Did you do another security risk assessment? I think so often um, parties are either just not documenting and that's why we're not seeing it. Um, so they should be documenting to make sure they're getting, you know, that's all critical information um, to have when maybe there's a, a later breach that's a larger breach or you're later being investigated to be able to look back at those materials and show like, hey, here's my documentation of my risk assessment. Here are the exceptions that I relied on. Here was my um, rationale for not notifying or if I did notify, here's how I did it and who was notified and why. Um, so I think that's a critical piece of just making sure that documentation is there. Um, and it just comes up so often in my practice that I think it's, it's worth stressing. And then also not forgetting about state law, right? You've got, you know, we're all, you know, over and over HIPAA, 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 but you've also got 50 state laws to think about. So when you have a potential breach, really starting your HIPAA analysis, but at the same time, starting that state law analysis. Um, every state defines breach differently. Some, you know, specifically carve out any um, P 
PHI and defer to HIPAA. Other states um, will cover healthcare data. They may, what a breach is under HIPAA may be different than what a breach is under state law. There may be different notification timelines, different entities that have to be notified. So making sure that when you're doing that breach analysis, you're not just starting like, okay, we're gonna do our HIPAA analysis. That's gonna take us two weeks. And then we're going to then turn to our state law analysis. And oops, this is a, this is a reportable breach under state law. And now we're really behind. And now we've really got to press to get um, our notifications out in time. So I think both of those things around just, you know, making sure you have that thorough, reasonable, um, breach analysis is so important. Um, and just one of those things that I think stresses again, you know, it's great to have the policies and procedures, um, but they can't just be sitting on the shelf, right? You have to be actually implementing them and, um, you know, putting your actions and all the great work you're doing down on paper so you can prove later that, hey, we've been, we've been doing the right thing and we've been taking the right steps. Yeah, and, and, and you know something that you mentioned there that that I have often found interesting. You talked about state law, um, and, and that's critical. Uh, but one of the things that you also have to consider, even with HIPAA, is the jurisdiction of the, the where the the um, people whose information was breached are residing. So mm -hmm. if you're in a, in a mm -hmm. tri-corner state kind of a situation where you have people in you know, Ohio and people in Indiana and people in, you know, another state that are all being served by your uh, facility, then you have to, you have to really think carefully about where these people are in terms of which states apply to what degree uh, and where you're going to have to make notice, uh, you know, to the different uh, bodies, including the media in some totally. cases. What, what are mm -hmm. your thoughts there? Yeah. How do you go about making sure that you've considered this most fully when you start dealing with various jurisdictions? Yeah, I mean, it can get complicated quickly. And I think, again, just making sure that you're moving up your state law analysis up into your priority space. Um, because I think it's so often it's kind of looked at like as a secondary thing. Um, and especially what you're talking about, if you're dealing with a large breach where you've got people traveling in, you've got people crossing state lines, um, really drilling down on that. And I would recommend that if you are a security officer, a compliance officer, or um, in-house counsel or otherwise, you know, that should be research that's already done, right? Like, right. I strongly suggest to my clients, like, you should have ready to go a breach questionnaire, which as soon as you receive that hotline complaint, you can go in, you've got your questions you're gonna ask yourself, you write those down, you've got your template breach um, assessment memo. So it's got all the standard stuff in there, so you just go in and plug in the facts. You've got your chart that has the state laws that are most likely applicable to your organization. And so all of that shouldn't be something that needs to be created on the fly. Um, so really thinking about like, hey, if we do have a breach, it's most likely that we're going to be dealing with, you know, these five states or, you know, whatever your population looks like. So having that ready to go so you know right away, okay, I know this state we're in, it's state law is not applicable to healthcare information, so I'm good to go. So, you know, having all that ready is super important because 
this is stressful, right? This is, it could be at times a bit chaotic when you especially given a very large breach and the amount of time that you have to investigate it. Any of that work that you can do on the front end is just so crucial um, and making sure your organization is it's gonna be smooth sailing. You can just open up the documents and you've got it ready to go. You don't have 20 hours of research that you have to do just to even start your analysis. Yeah, I, I, and I think that that's a, a really important point. One of the things that I heard someone say a few years ago that sticks with me, when it comes to a, a breach situation, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, correct? <laughs> it's going yeah, to happen. Yeah, no, right, yep. Mm -hmm. and so being prepared at the front end is is really crucial. Uh, I, that, I think that's the best best advice anyone can get is be prepared for this before it happens rather than after. So let's right. shift let's shift gears a little bit for a moment here. When when you look at healthcare covered entities and their and the business associates that, that support them, where do you think things go wrong? Um, we've talked about breach notification thus far, but Talk about some of the other areas where things go wrong in their HIPAA compliance programs. Yeah, I think that, I mean, security is a big piece of that. Just making sure that you have the right um, security protocols and procedures in place to deal with the newest um, cybersecurity risks. And I think what's interesting um, and that I've seen again this year has been, there's been a lot of writing and things coming of it is, you know, there's been the new HHS proposed modifications to the HIPAA rules as part of the regulatory sprint to coordinated care. And part of that was to promote value-based healthcare and encourage providers to engage in a greater degree of care coordination and allowing additional disclosures of certain information. And we're, really looking forward to getting those changes and understanding what those are because pretty much every covered entity, every business associate is going to need to change their policies and procedures, their forms, their business associate agreement. So um, it's definitely something to kind of look out for. But around the same time that that proposed rule came out, um, there was a less publicized change to high tech and this was under House Bill um, 7 Eight, nine, eight, and basically it said that HHS, you need to start considering more recognized cybersecurity practices and that if, you know, covered entities and business associates are actually following recognized industry best practices, you need to consider that as part of how much you're going to find them, whether you're going to audit them, um, whether their breach mitigation activities are sufficient. Um, and so that rule was just in January and it's directing HHS to start considering these things. And the standards are published by um, the entity National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. And um, they have these, this publication of these cybersecurity practices, but it's really old, it's 13 years old. And they have asked in the summer for comments on how to improve you know, what the recognized cybersecurity practices are. So that's another area where it's, it's, that's a potential change, right, to what we've been seeing in the HIPAA space. It's like, well, this is an old rule and nothing's really changing, but you still need to pay attention to it. But something like that is where, hey, these new cybersecurity practices 
and the best practices are constantly changing. So making sure you're looking at those, you're understanding what those are. And I think when we, we finally get this um, new guidance um, refreshed after 13 years, it's going to be really important for covered entities and business associates to, again, look back at their, at their security practices and make sure you know, they're constantly working on those and what they should have had implemented a year ago, maybe a little bit different than what they need to implement today given all the threats that there are. So I think, again, it's just kind of this staying on top of it. It, it. While the rules haven't changed, it's still a constantly evolving environment, um, which becomes more threatening you know, every day, practically. So healthcare providers just really want to make sure they're adjusting to any new standards. So they, if in the event that they unfortunately may have a catastrophic breach and they may have an OCR investigation, they're ready to go. They've got, you know, hey, OCR, we have been following this new practice. Like, here's all the great things we're doing. Here's why you should reduce our fines. Here's why you shouldn't audit us in the future. So I think just, you know, staying ahead of those best practices and making sure you're implementing those is really important. So the two things I'm hearing in, in that commentary there is, is number one, that uh, while these rules may have been around a long time, they are not static. They are, in fact, iterative. Things are continuing. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so. then the second thing that I'm hearing, and, and I love the fact that you brought up 7898, um, because that really has caused quite a few organizations some consternation. They don't quite understand what that means or what its, what its real intent is. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's essentially, if I understand it correctly, it's establishing the idea that if you are subscribing to and following reasonable practices with your security program, that it gives OCR and organizations like that the leeway to be much more flexible. Would that be a good way to mm-hmm. wrap that? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think um, what always struck me is around the same time that that rule, and that was in January, and I think it was also in January that um, HHS lost a big appeal um, against University of Texas in the Anderson Cancer Center. So this was like highly publicized at the time, but they HHS had fined Indy Anderson, I think it was like over $4 million mm-hmm. as a HIPAA penalty for a lost laptop and two lost USBs, which were not encrypted. Um, and that is grossly above what I've ever seen. And, uh, you know, the court came down and said it was arbitrary and capricious and not consistent with other fines to other covered entities in similar situations. Um, and that the court stressed that Indy Anderson may not have had a perfect mechanism in place to encrypt EPHI, but it did have a mechanism in place. It was requiring its employees to encrypt USBs and laptops. The employees just failed to do it. So the court noted that it doesn't have to be bulletproof, but you need to have these best practices in place, right? So to me, they really tie together in that, you know, I think HHS is being way too aggressive on the MD Anderson case. And then you've got this new bill that's basically saying the same thing, like, hey, you need to look at what are the recognized practices. And we need to allow our covered entities and business associates to be able to point back to those because it is constantly changing. And 
there isn't a way to guarantee, you know, nothing's bulletproof. Um, and so that to me allows covered entities and business associates and their lawyers, right, to make to make those arguments of, you know, it, unfortunately it's not always gonna protect you from the breach occurring, but here's all that evidence again of all the things we're doing and here's how it lines up with those recognized practices and, you know, OCR, HHS, your fine is way out of line compared to what we should be doing. So um, I thought it was really interesting that those were happening around the same time. I don't know if they're officially tied together, but um, they're closely linked in my mind of, you know, again, back to this idea of let's have what are the recognized practices and how important it is um, to make sure you're implementing those. Excellent. Um, I, I think you wrapped that up beautifully right there. Um, so, 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 the, the, so the bottom line with the, with the NIST security standard guidance is, is that, you know, NIST is not a regulatory agency, but many of us in the healthcare industry have learned to rely on NIST as being the organization that does a really good job of putting this stuff into a framework and a methodology that we can follow and use. Because, you know, let's think about the difference between the NIST guidance and the actual security rule, for example. The security rule is written very agnostically. It doesn't, doesn't get into a lot of detail about the methodology to achieve something, but the NIST guidance does help us to establish and, and get a better path to what we're trying to do to ensure we're being compliant with these rules. Would you agree with that? Yeah, completely. And I think, you know, there's some healthcare companies that are able to engage great companies like Clearwater and understand kind of you know, can get into that guidance and really process it and use it. And then there are some smaller entities, I think, that are completely ignoring those kind of things, right? So again, just back to, you know, back to the basics, being aware of the guidance that's out there, making sure, you know, you're complying with that, making sure you understand it, I think is, is so critical. Right. Right. Now, I want to shift gears on us again for a moment. I, I, I noticed in my intro of you that you spend a lot of work uh, time working in healthcare transactions. The whole world of M&A is fascinating to me. What are some of the things that you see happening in M&A when it comes to HIPAA that you would say are best practices? Yeah, so I do a lot, like you said, of M&A work, per, particularly with private equity um, firms that are purchasing up healthcare providers really across the spectrum. And what becomes evident to me in every one of those deals, right, is no one wants to buy a HIPAA breach. You want to make sure the company you're purchasing um, is, well, we all know they can't be perfect in the HIPAA world. They need to be compliant and the lawyers that are on those teams, the auditors, um, the compliance people that are on the, the team for the buyer or the seller, they are going to be looking at your HIPAA um, policies and procedures and your practices. And that's ultimately going to impact deal value. It's going to impact the ability to get reps and warranty insurance. It's going to impact whether or not the deal happens at all. And I think so often targets are surprised by that. Um, and I think, you know, it's a, you know, HIPAA has been around for a long time is, you know, one argument, but it's also the argument of, well, yeah, it's been around a long time. So you have no excuse, <laughs> you know, you have to have this stuff in place. And if you don't, it's going to be a red flag to us. 
And um, I think just so often in the due diligence process, that's, that's coming up of, you know, hey, there, there are some potential breaches here. We don't have a breach analysis. Um, no one has ever documented this. Or, you know, uh-oh, OCR came in a couple of years ago. What did they say? Um, so I think it's, it's really critical um, to a successful acquisition, um, successful sales to really have your HIPAA compliance in a great spot. And it, it adds a ton of value um, to your company for you know, investors to come in and say, wow, like you really have it together here. You know, that gives a good um, impression of the company and it makes the transaction that much smoother and that much cleaner. And uh, many, many PE firms that I talk to, they've been hit on this issue before. Um, firms will know they've had several acquisitions where maybe in the last year they had major HIPAA breaches shortly after an acquisition. Again, they don't want to buy a HIPAA breach, right? I've had deals where um, a HIPAA breach occurs in the middle of the deal um, and the deal comes to a screeching halt um, and either <clears throat> takes forever to close or it ultimately dies. So, you know, the HIPAA piece of transactions, again, it seems like, okay, this is kind of an old issue but it is so critical um, to the foundation of the business and can really, for your clients that are looking to sell or if you're um, looking to sell a company, it can add so much value um, because it is going to impact, you know, your, your escrow, your rep and warranties, um, your rep and warranty insurance, liability caps and all of that. So I think it's just a good reminder that this goes beyond just um, looking at, okay, what are the financial ramifications if you have an investigation or a breach? Um, it also has big financial consequences to the value of the underlying business. So that's just another reason to really um, focus in. So I think just generally as a theme of all of this, it's, you know, getting back to the basics, refocusing your attention on the foundation of your HIPAA compliance practices is a great way to maintain momentum and maintain growth of a company. So, so if we're still spelling HIPAA with two P's, that would be problematic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite way to know that like, oh man, this is gonna be rough right from the beginning. <laughs> I, I said that intentionally, having done a few uh, M&A uh, due diligence projects myself, uh, that yeah, what you've just <laughs> said there is is really the critical piece to all of that. Um, and, and I think of it much like I think of this seven eight this House Bill 7898, it's about having a program that has been in place for some time. I think 7898 says at least 12 months, right? Uh, if yeah. I recall that right. Yeah. yeah. Your program's been mm -hmm. in place. And, and the same thing applies with M&A uh, in many ways. It's Building a program three weeks before you're going to start the transaction is probably right. not going to do the job. Totally. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm always requesting, hey, I need six years worth of your HIPAA information, right? Um, and it's going to be a huge red flag if you have nothing but information for the past six months. And I mean, of course, there you know, you've got to look at the business perspective and there's going to be times where it's a small physician group, right, is many of them or small dental practice is not going to have super robust HIPAA practices, right? And that's 
and that unfortunately is common. Um, so you're looking at the bigger picture, but still, especially with very sophisticated organizations that are selling for, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, you really, you need to have that great policies and procedures and practices in place. And you can bet that people are going to be looking at, are going to be looking at that multiple law firms, multiple auditors, um, everybody's going to have their eyes on it. So, so being prepared for that um, many years in advance is well worth any cost. Um, and it, you're going to make that money back in the, in the value of the business going down, down the road. I agree very much. Well, um, so if you had to wrap all of this up and, and put a bow on, on this today, getting back to the basics is of course a, a, um, a, a critical way to look at it, but, is there anything that you would give as advice or guidance as, as a way of closing this out that you think would be critical and important for the listeners to hear from you today? Yeah, I think just, you know, a reminder of refocusing that attention. I think our jobs in the healthcare space are incredibly overwhelming and stressful. And, uh, you know, we don't have to tell that to anyone on this, on this call or listening to this podcast. And I think there's just so much going on and there's so many new rules and regulations. And so I think it's worth just taking that time, um, whether you have a set time on your calendar, there's um, you know, maybe a set month that you're gonna you know, focus on some of these tasks and really just get back looking at these, refocus your attention on the foundations of your HIPAA compliance practices. And the organization is going to you know, really benefit from that time. So it's something really important to do, um, not only for our patients, but also for, for our businesses. And I think you hit on something very important there. At the end of the day, it's about our patients. Right. Yes. We can't forget that. We cannot forget that. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. We're all patients. We all want our information protected. So absolutely. So there you go. So it's really about us. All right. (laughs) So when you, when you wrap all this up, then um, some, some little thoughts that I had that I think tie to what you said is number one is preparation. Um, preparing in advance for whatever it is that you've got to do, whether it's building something new uh, for a new practice or whether it's getting ready to sell a practice or whatever it might be, preparation is the key. Being prepared in in your breach notification process, being prepared in your M&A process. Those are critical pieces, it seems like to me. Paying attention to mm-hmm. the uh, to the new guidance and the new directives. Uh, I know you know one that we haven't even really talked about yet is the proposed changes to the privacy rule. For goodness sakes, you know there's right. a whole, mm-hmm. there's a whole podcast right. just on that one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> sure. um, you know, so we've got House Bill seven eight nine eight. We've got the NIST standards. We've got the changes possible to the privacy rule. All of those things are, are crucial. State law, knowing what the rules are in the jurisdiction that you're working in uh, and, and supporting and where you have multiple jurisdictions and different rules and, and, and regulations that might apply and different time requirements to make notice can also come mm-hmm. into play, right? Mm-hmm. And then finally, right. the, last thing, the last thing that I heard from you was document, document, document. 
have we got that right? Right. Have we really hit the big one? <laughs> that is, yeah. No, those are it. Those that's a great summary. I think, um, yeah, that's that's exactly right. And you know, to your documentation point and to all the other points, it's you know, you deserve credit. Um, document it, show that you've done it right. Um, I think can be a huge step forward. Well, I think that this has been a very useful time for us to sit and talk through this today. Um, I, I appreciate the opportunity to hear someone else say things that I actually have said many times over as well, <laughs> uh, because these are really the crucial things to make this all happen. And uh, and I hope that the listeners uh, to the podcast will will be reminded themselves about the value of sticking with doing the things that are the basics that we know work and we know have to be in place mm -hmm. uh, and, and just moving forward in an iterative way. I love that word iterative, moving forward in an iterative mm -hmm. way to solve the challenges and the, and the issues that come up. Uh, Andrea, it's been a pleasure to spend this time with you today. And so let's wrap it up just by saying on behalf of Clearwater Compliance uh, and myself and Andrea uh, Lineal with uh, McGuire Wood, uh, we appreciate you listening to the podcast today and we hope you have a great and wonderful fall. And with that, we'll say so long. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.